Well, welcome everybody. As we start a brand new year, we start a brand new series. Uh, for those of you who might have just been joining during the time of worship, uh, we're so glad that you're with us here and watching with us online. Uh, thank you for being here and thank you for all of you who are part of our church service today. And so uh, we're going to be in Matthew uh, 16 in a little bit. Um, but as you're turning there, before you turn there, uh, I want to introduce the series that we're going to be in. Because this series is going to take us through the month of January. Um, and, you know, often in January we do series or you, you hear sermons about, you know, s- habits that you can start or ways you can grow and things that are re- resolutions, which are obviously very important. And I'm not uh, downgrading those or demeaning those by any stretch of the imagination. But I also recognize that I wanted to spend, we wanted to spend some time looking at the importance of the church. And so our series is called DNA the core of the local church. And the idea behind that is for us to take some time to look at what are the building blocks of the church that we see in the New Testament and how do we as a church, a Pomerado Christian church, uh, live that out. Now, because it's called DNA, I wanted to share uh, with, with all of you the way that I learned the most about DNA as a kid growing up in the 90s. Uh, it was not through science class, but it was actually through uh, the very scientifically accurate movie, Jurassic Park. And so uh, Jurassic Park, there's a scene in which uh, there's this character, you know, this DNA, this Mr. DNA who comes in and explains to the people who are checking out Jurassic Park how it is that they were able to make dinosaurs out of the DNA. And the whole idea is that, you know, there are mosquitoes that bit the dinosaurs, got the blood, and they were covered in, into, um, by tree sap and became amber because uh, it crystallized. And then the Jurassic Park scientists, with their very sophisticated methods, which at the time was just like a needle, uh, is able to extract the blood, use that to create the basis of the dinosaur DNA, but then be able to fill in the gaps of that DNA block with um, like frog DNA or something. So it's all very scientific. And so, uh, but I learned more about DNA in that because then I learned about how, I don't remember the names of the different bases, but like the base pair of A matches up with T and G matches up with C. And so I learned, you know, about DNA uh, from Jurassic Park for the most part. Um, And This idea here is that in that clip um, with the DNA molecule that looks like very fancy clip art, um, he talks about how DNA is the build are the building blocks or is the building block for living things. So as we take the next the month of January to look at the church, which is living, it's it's not just something that existed thousands of years ago. It is it is ever present and it is living, and it is um, God is working through the church, our church here at Pomerado Christian Church, but the church, capital C Church across the world. So we're going to take some time. And what are some of the basic building blocks of the living thing that Jesus instituted called the church? So will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for us today? Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord, and we thank you that um, you are with us, Lord. Wherever we are now, uh, you are present. Whether we're watching at home, whether we're here in person, God, we thank you so much that you um, created this day, that we rejoice and are glad in it. And I thank you for each person that has uh, joined us for our service this morning, and we honor that and we're excited. Uh, God, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us in a way that, uh, that we need to hear you today. So may I decrease, may you increase, may you speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. God, we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And again, as you're preparing to turn there, uh, I want to take a moment to think about words 
We're going to talk about a lot about words today. So uh, we've got we got some unpacking to do. This sermon's a little different than most um, because it's going to do a lot of teaching. Uh, we're going to take some time to unpack some things because there are some words in our language that have changed the meaning over time. So some of the meanings that have changed is I want to give a sentence and I'm going to write it up here. And it's as a San Francisco 49er football fan. You don't have to be a fan of the Niners, um, but this this sentence will kind of paint the picture of a sentence that we would say now, what we think of it, and how it would be different if a few certain specific words were translated or understood how they originally were meant to be. So the sentence is this. Um, It's hard to fathom how much the 49ers have been decimated by injuries. It's been an awful season. If you follow football, uh, the 49ers um, made it to the Super Bowl last year. Uh, we're winning in the fourth quarter uh, and then lost. And so I'm fine. We're, we're fine. Um, I'm just kidding. So we ended up, um, you know, we're thinking this is going to be a year where they come back. But they have just been, you know, they've had so many injuries. They have the most amount of players who are on injured reserve, which means that they um, had to take some time off. We had season injury season-ending injuries to some of our core, core players. Uh, we've had so much money locked up in players that cannot play. And so it's really, it's really you know, made it a really difficult season. I don't expect your pity. If you want to give it, that's fine, but I don't expect it. But what I want to share is this, is that I'm going to highlight a few words here as we put this exact same sentence and highlight the words fathom, decimated, and awful. Because these three words are words that their meanings have changed over time, that the word fathom, when we say, I can't fathom something, it's this idea that we, we can't wrap our minds around it, that we can't comprehend it fully, that it's, just, it's, it's, it's hard to grasp. But the original idea of the word fathom is actually it's a unit of measurement. And what it is, is it's the, it's the width of when you put your arms around something. So you would hug a tree and be like, oh, this is like two fathoms or, or whatever, or half of a fathom, I should say. So it's this idea of that's no, I don't know if that's actually true. But this idea of saying that it was an actual unit of measurement, which is why when you hear about, you know, in Acts 27, when we talked about the sea and the storm a few months ago, they would say, they would do a sounding, and they would see that the water um, was only 90 fathoms deep. It was, it was an actual unit of measurement. In the same way that if you see a cubit in the Bible, it's an actual 18-inch measurement. It, it, it's a consistent measurement. It's not just words. So this isn't saying, oh, or the water, it's not saying, Hey, the water is 90 to 120, like, you, like ideas of I can't comprehend something, fathom. It's 90 to 20 units of measurement, right? So how does it change? Well, the idea has been that instead of the word fathom being something we wrap our arms around, it's something that is hard for us to wrap our minds around. That it's changed from something to a unit of measurement to something that we cannot comprehend. That's one word that's changing here. The next one is decimated. Because when we use the word decimated, we often use it in the sense, the way that I use it in the sentence, is a way to kind of determine that something has just been destroyed or obliterated or just completely ravaged by it. But the word decimated actually means one in ten. Or so you think about a decimal, right? Decimated, very similar word. That December was supposed to be the 10th month in the same way that September should have been the 7th, sept, October the 8th, November the 9th, December the 10th. But I think it's just because like Caesar, Julius, and Augustus, like we're just going to stick ours in there and throw off the whole count. So now September is the 9th month, which whatever. So this idea of decimal, December, and then decimated. And so this was something where it would be 1 in 10 would be what this is referred to. So if the 49ers only were decimated, 
to use the original verb or understanding, if it was only one in 10 people that got injured, I would take that in a heartbeat. That'd be amazing, but that's not how we use it today. The last one I want to focus on is the word awful, because we think of awful as terrible, as horrible, right, as really negative. But the original idea for awful is the idea that we would be, it would cause us to be filled with awe, that we are awe-filled or awful, that we would be filled with the awe of the Lord as an example. So it's interesting how our words have changed because if something is awesome, if we're like, we have some awe, that's a great thing. But if we're awful and we're filled with awe, now that's a horrible thing, right? So it's just, this is not, you know, this is not on the quiz later. You don't need to worry about this, but it paints the picture of how words change their meaning. And so how we want to look at today the word church and how the meaning has changed over time. And if you're taking notes, uh, one phrase that I want us to really, you know, kind of will guide a little bit of what we're talking about today is this idea that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Again, I'm giving you a bunch of words, more coming. So I uh, hope, you, hope you're buckling in. So orthodoxy, ortho, is the, comes from the word meaning straighten or right, correct, if you will. So an orthodontist is someone who straightens our teeth or makes our teeth right. Um, th- if you have orthopedics, an orthopedic surgeon or orthopedics is someone who's helping to make our, our spine or our body straighten up, right? So ortho means right or straight. Doxy, which, so this word is, it's a compound word in the Greek, it's orthodoxy. So then doxy comes from this idea of doxology, we hear this, or it's our beliefs. And then praxy, the praxy part of that comes from practice. So what this, what this roughly translates into is this is a phrase I learned in, in um, undergrad at Azusa Pacific University. But what this basically boils down to is that right belief leads to right practice. Right belief leads to right practice. And this can go for a myriad different things, right? This can be something where it comes to um, something as, you know, if, if I want to lose weight and I do a bunch of working out, but I don't change my diet, I can try to do a good practice, but if I don't have the right understanding of how our bodies work, then I could try to do a bunch of practice, but it may not have the right result. And that could go for so many things. Oh, I want to I wanna have more energy, but if I stay up late, if we don't get enough sleep, then of course we're going to be tired, right? So then it's just different areas in our lives where we can say, okay, it's a right belief, a right understanding will lead to right practice. And here's why this is important. And we're going to unpack this over the rest of our time together because our understanding of the church, our understanding of how Jesus created the church and what he meant by um, what he says here in Matthew 16 will shape how it is that we live out what it means to be part of the church. Both how we individually, as individuals, lead it out, how we as the local church of Pomerado Christian Church live it out, but then also the global church of which we are honored to be a part of, that when we sing worship songs this morning, we were joining in the chorus of global church of billions of people across the world within a 24-hour period singing and lifting up the name of God and the name of Jesus. And so we want to build our foundation. Our sermon today is just called The Foundation. What's the foundation of the church? And we sang about that a little bit earlier, but let's unpack a little bit more of it now. So as we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse uh, 13. I'm going to read 13 through 20, and then we're going to land on one specific verse for the majority of our time together this morning. Here's what verse 13 says. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. We'll stop there because many of us, you know, as Christ followers, those of us who trust in Jesus and have given our lives to him, people, you know, if we say, hey, who do, who do you think Jesus is? And we were just to take a, 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 you know, a straw poll or just ask questions of who people think Jesus is. Some might say that they think he's you know, a really good teacher. Like he's got some really good teachings. Some would say that he is a really moral man. Some would say that he's a prophet. Some might say that he's a liar. Some might say that he's a lunatic. We say, not that he's liar or lunatic, but as C.S. Lewis puts it, that we say he's Lord. And we acknowledge that. But the question of who do people, what do, what do people around us say, who do they say Jesus is, is a question that there are still several different answers nowadays, just as there were here. They say, oh, they think that you're John the Baptist, or, or, or maybe you're Elijah, or maybe you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And so it's an important question for us to kind of have an idea of who do people say Jesus is? But Jesus' next question is one that we ought to pay attention to as well. Verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. I will give you the key of the king, keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now there's a lot of rich, rich things for us to pull out of that, um, that passage. But for our purpose today of looking into the foundation of the church, you know, we're not going to take as much time as saying, why did he say this at Caesarea Philippi? And, and the fact that there was a place there that they thought was kind of the, the gates of Hades or the gates of the underworld. And so why did he use that specific verbiage there? Or we're not going to spend a ton of time in looking at what does it mean that he bound certain things in heaven and loose certain things in heaven? And, and what does that look like? Because we want to focus on the statement of Peter in verse 18. When, pe- when Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter steps up. And we're going to put it up here, and I'm going to highlight different words from this verse to unpack different things that that we need to learn and and be reminded of, or maybe learn for the first time about what the foundation is of the church. The first one here is that the words that are reminded, or excuse me, highlighted, says, I tell you that highlighted is that you are Peter, and then, and on this rock, I will build my church. And we'll stop there for now. This idea that Peter's the one who, his name is Simon, son of Jonah, but Jesus gave him the name Peter. And the name Peter is, is the word Petros, which means uh, like a small pebble. And then that's the, that's the masculine word for um, Petros or for rock in the Greek language. And then the feminine word is the word Petra, which is kind of more like a larger rock or like a larger, like a boulder, like something that's much more imposing. And so the question, the reason we have a highlight is that he says, you are Peter. And he's saying, your name wasn't originally Peter, but I'm calling you Peter. You are Peter. You are Petros. You are, you are a small pebble, but you are a rock. It's a wordplay. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. So the question becomes, what is the rock that Jesus is referring to? That there are some, there's multiple interpretations based on the Greek um, 
uh, uh, syntax and the Greek grammar there that, that can work for this. One of them is the idea that, that Peter himself is the rock. Because it says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. The question that then becomes out of that is, if it was Peter, if the idea was originally Peter, Jesus could have said, and you are Peter, and on you I will build my rock. Or on you I will build my church as the rock. Another way to put it is this idea that um, Peter was obviously, I mean, just a vital member to the early church. I mean, there's no denying how important Peter is. He's the leader of the apostles. He's the preacher at Pentecost. He wrote uh, some of the epistles. He was a martyr who wanted to be crucified upside down for he found himself unworthy to be uh, crucified in the same way that Jesus was. I mean, he's incredibly important. But the question begs that if he is, if the foundation is him as the rock, does that then mean that if a church was founded through Epaphras and Paul through Colossians, we looked at that several months ago. Does that mean that because the foundation wasn't on Peter, that then the, it's, it's not a, a valid church? Well, no. Or the idea of recognizing that it's, it's this question of, is Peter the one that is the foundation of the early church? He's incredibly important. And one commentator, or excuse me, one way of looking at that is saying that he is the one that the foundation of the church is. Another way of looking at it, and one that I personally would lean a little bit more towards, is this idea that it's not Peter as the person, but it's Peter's proclamation that is the foundation of the church. This perception comes all the way back to, to John Chrysostom in the 300s AD, who right after writing about this verse, talks about how the rock is the words of Peter. It's the, it's the proclamation that when, G, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, you are the Christ. It's his proclamation of who Jesus is, that that belief and that proclamation will be the foundation of Christ's church. And, and if we look at it that way, it, it allows us to, to say that there is still a play on words that says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. But the idea is now that you are Petros, and out of this small pebble, Petros, comes this large boulder-like truth, this foundational truth, this Petra, that Jesus is Christ, Jesus is Lord, he's the Son of the living God. And so this word Christ, the word Messiah, it all, it's the same idea of meaning God's anointed. It's saying Jesus' fact that identity as the anointed, and Peter's proclamation of that defines the foundation of the church. And so it's important for us to, to unpack that for a moment, to say, who is the rock? It's Jesus, and it's the proclamation that he is the, that Jesus is the Lord. He's the Son of living God. He's the Christ. And so we'll go to the next one here. The next part that we want to be reminded of or talk about is not just that Jesus says that he tells Peter who he is, talks about his foundational truth, and then Jesus says, I will build my church. And we're going to focus on I will build. Andy Stanley in his book, Deep and Wide, which is called Creating, or the subtitles, Creating Churches Unchurched People Want to Attend. Uh, he talks about how he loves that passage because that passage, when Jesus says, I will build, it, also, it serves both as kind of a prophecy and a promise. It's a prophecy because he's saying that he is going to do something, that he is going to build his church. And that 2,000 years later, we are one of numerous churches across the world who are still part of the church, his universal church. And so it's a, it's a prophecy saying that he saw what the church was going to become. He knew, and we are part of that. 
but it's also a promise. And the promise comes in the fact that it's he will do the building. As a pastor, it is so easy to look around at other churches and to see what other churches are doing or how they're doing things um, and to see and be like, oh man, how, how, do, how do we do more? How do I do this? Or why don't I have that gift set? I'm, why am I not that talented in that way? Or why don't why, why? And we compare. And I'm sure that comparison, especially through social media, I'm sure that is not something that is unique to pastors. That we might all look at what other people have, what they do, their giftedness, their abilities, or whatever it may be, and say, why don't we have that? Why don't I have their life? It's comforting for me to know that even when I look around and I see what God is doing through other churches, that one, I can rejoice because we're all on the same team. But two, I can take solace in the fact that Jesus says he's the one that's building it. It's not just on my shoulders or just on the elder's shoulders or just on the steward's shoulders or just on our staff's shoulders. Yes, we, we are called into this position for such a time as this, and it's an honor to be the pastor at this church, but it's not just on my own ability or my own strength that the church will be built. And that feels like a weight off of my shoulders. Not so that we just sit back and watch Jesus do stuff. We need to be a partner and partner with him, right? But we need to make sure that it's not all on me. It's not all on you. However, he says it's a prophecy and a promise. He will build. But then here's the point we're going to land on the most is the next one where it says, I will build my church. We're going to spend the majority of our time here. And some of you are thinking, the majority of your time, you've already spent a lot of time. And so bear with me. But we're going to unpack a few more words here that, uh, that I think if we go in this journey, if you stay with me, we will have an opportunity to see what Jesus was originally intending and how we line up into that coming through this time of history. Because when it says in the scripture, I will build my church, that word church is the word ecclesia. We've talked about this before, but if you're newer with us or you're still learning, um, as we all are, but if you're still, if that's not familiar, the word ecclesia meant an assembly. It meant the called out ones. So an example of this would be if inside of a town there were some, a, a council of leaders, um, and if there was a need that people, you know, the council needed to come together, someone would blow a horn. And once someone heard that horn, they knew, oh, it's I need to stop whatever I'm doing. I've been on this council. I need to stop what I'm doing. And I'm called out to be a part of this, this council to hear what's going on and to talk about it. That the word ecclesia was a very consistent um, understanding in the Greek word. And again, it means the assembly or the called out ones. And so when we look at that here, it says, I will build my church. And he talks about how he's, building an assembly of people. We, we talk about church. Another word for church is a congregation. Who are the people who are congregating to be part of the church service? And this idea of church as the assembly, as the ecclesia, as the called out ones, was one that permeated the first three centuries of the early church. Because the early church was not tied to a location. It was a movement. It was something that moved and it lived and it breathed and it was spread out. And even under persecution, the persecution only served to make sure that the seeds of the gospel were spread further out from Jerusalem. That there were house churches, house assemblies, house ecclesias, house gatherings in which people would come together and they would 
be devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to prayer, and devoted to the breaking of bread, as we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they would come together as a community of people who were intentionally called out to be part of God's people, to be an assembly. And that lasted for the first three centuries, and it withstood and grew out of deep persecution in the Roman Empire. In fact, right around the year 300, so about 303, 304, the dates aren't 100% solidified, but I want to share a story of a, of a man named Romanus. Romanus was uh, from Caesarea, and he was someone that he had, um, he was the, the bishop of the, the church, the assembly in Caesarea. And as Romanus was there, he was, um, he's talking about how he was in the middle of a church service, and as the story goes, there were Romans who came, and they were, there was a prefect, so a Roman military leader who was going to, um, you know, basically try to destroy the church. And so Romanus says, everybody, the wolf is at the doorstep, but stand firm. And so the church actually fights off the Romans with all of their weapons. And so the church makes it through, the assembly of people make it through that. But then they come back, and the Romans come back, and, and they, they start to torture Romanus. And Romanus ends up experiencing incredible torture, that he was stabbed so many times, or slashed, excuse me, so many times on his side that you could see his rib bone to the bone shone white. That he experienced such torture that his beard was ripped out, that his face had been slashed multiple times, that his mouth, that the teeth had been removed so that he could hopefully, in, in Roman eyes, not be able to preach anymore and be able to say the gospel anymore. And so even still, he stood firm. Story has it that he was even set to be burned at a stake, but that a storm came down and it washed out the fire so that Romanus was able to keep preaching. In fact, what he says here is that he talks about after he had all that torture, he said, I thank thee, O prefect. Look how many wounds I have, so many mouths I have, whereby I may preach my Lord and Savior Christ and praise God. That the persecution was something that didn't stop him from preaching Christ as God. It inspired him to do it all the more. And after a long time of being tortured, he eventually was um, strangled to death as, as the way that the Romans were finally able to silence his mouth, but they could never silence his message. And the church, the assembly, the ecclesia, the called out ones expanded. Because early church martyrs, again, martyr, another word for us, martyr means witness. Early church martyrs were people who, they were not ones who had the best teaching styles. They're not the ones who were the wisest. They're not even the ones who knew all those things. But like John 9, the man born blind, he says, listen, I don't know all the answers to your theological questions, Pharisees, but here's what I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. Martyrs who were witnesses are ones who are witnesses to an event. They were witnesses to Jesus' coming. They were witnesses to the power of the gospel, and they were inviting people not to a location of the church, but to be part of the called out assembly of the people of the church. It was a movement that kept spreading. And after 300 years, this continued on until around 313 AD, in which Constantine, who was the, the emperor of Rome, he had first made it so that all religions were um, legal, because the reason Christians were able to be persecuted is that any religion that was not the Roman gods, Roman pantheon, um, were people that were, um, they were able to be persecuted and killed. And so he made 
worship of other religions, or excuse me, other religions, legal. But then in 313, something crazy happened. The emperor of Rome, the one to whom other people would worship as a god, professed Jesus as God. He became a Christian. And so now Christianity started to spread, but not in the way of a movement, but in the way of a place, of a monument. Because what they would do is they would build church buildings as monuments to certain saints, to certain people who had lived and been martyrs or had given their lives and sacrificed and been witnesses. They would say, okay, this person died here. Let's build a church as a building around their bones, around their artifacts. Or if we couldn't do that, let's, let's take the artifacts of the bones that, they were once, that were buried and let's move them to another location in which we can build a church. So the understanding of worship as a movement ceased and the understanding of church as a monument, as a location began to be organized. It began to be a place where people would come to worship Jesus in a place that was seen as holy because of the the bones that were there or the saint that it was named after. It went from moving to be spread out throughout the world to be a monument to which we asked the world to come and join us. And to be part of us. And this shift changed everything. Because with a location became more control and power and leadership. With a lo- because then there'd be Bibles that were chained to a pulpit. Bibles that were only translated into Latin so that the common people wouldn't know it. And so then what happens is that in the 1500s, William Tyndale decides that you know, he wants to use the, the Greek Septuagint. So the Greek version of the Bible the Greek translation of the Old Testament, excuse me, and he wants to translate the Bible into the common language based off of the Greek. And he sees that when it says, I will build my church, that ecclesia, that assembly, that word is the same word that they use for the Israelites in Exodus 19 and 20 when they said that the people assembled to hear about the Ten Commandments at the foot of Mount Sinai, the feet of Mount Sinai. That the people were assembled, not by a location, but they were assembled and they were gathered together. So when he writes Matthew 16, 18 in the Tyndale translation, it doesn't say, and on this rock, I will build my church. It says, I will build my assembly. Because the word church that we use as the word church comes from the word, again, another word here, is the word kirka, which comes originally from the word kyrios, all the way back in the Greek, which means Lord or the house of the Lord. And so over time, it would say the house of the Lord, it's church, it's church. And so the meaning of the word assembly got lost. The ecclesia got lost. And church became the common nomenclature, the common language to describe a, where the people met. Again, it wasn't a movement, it became a monument. It wasn't a people, it was a place. And because of that, by the time Tyndale wrote that in the 1500s, people, it didn't stick because the word church had been so ingrained in our mind. And so I want to read this quotation from Andy Stanley from the Deep and Wide book that I referred to earlier. And it says, Whereas the majority of your English Bible is a word-for-word translation of the Greek text, not so in this case, this is specifically the case of the word ekklesia. The word church is not a translation from the Greek. It is a substitution for the Greek and a bad one at that. Because if you were just to translate it, it would say assembly. It says church. It says kirka instead. And so let's go to the next quotation. It says this. It continues on. The German term kirka and the Greek term ekklesia refer to two very different ideas. 
A kirke is a location. An ecclesia is a purposeful gathering of people you can, excuse me, a gathering of people. You can lock the doors of a kirke, not so with the ecclesia of Jesus. That we are, that the church is always meant not to be a where you meet. It's meant to be a who is responding to who Jesus is. When we invite people to church, we ought not just to invite them to 12708 Stone Canyon Road. We ought to invite them into what it means to be part of the people of God. Instead of being invitational, we say, come to our building, come to our monument, come to our place. We ought to be, and we all are called to be incarnational. We go into the world, and we go into where they are, and we are being part of the movement of the church that God, that Jesus has always seen it to be, called us to be. And so all these different pieces, we're all combining all of these different things. Because there's a question that we all need to answer. Let's go to the next slide here. And in the next slide, I believe it says this. So this is what Andy Stanley says. So when Jesus used the term ecclesia, his disciples understood him to say, I am going to build my own assembly of people and the foundation for this new assembly will be me. That's going to be on the person of Jesus, that we build our lives upon his love. It is a firm foundation, that the church, the assembly, the people of God are called that because they have called upon God as, as Jesus as Lord. Because they recognize he's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And so as we close, as we kind of bring all this together, what, why, why does this matter to us? Because orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right belief and right understanding of what God called, Jesus called us to be as a gathering of people. Understanding that will drive how we live. Because again, it won't be about bringing people to a place. It's to go into all the places to bring people Jesus. It won't be about having a monument that people come to. It'll be about a movement where we get to go. Now, let me be clear, absolutely unequivocally clear. The church building is incredibly important. I'm not demeaning the role the building has. Let's give an example of the importance of a building in our context. If I were to say on this hand, you have a library, and in this hand, you have a a, a rock concert. You're going to go to a rock concert. Both of those, when you hear that, you already have in mind what the purpose of each of those are, right? So if I were to say, hey, I need to go study for my finals tomorrow, I'm going to go and I'm going to bring my books and I'm going to study at the rock concert. You would say, that makes no sense. It's going to be loud, it's going to be obnoxious, and it's, you're not going to be able to study. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Likewise, if you were to say, I cannot wait to sing at the top of my lungs to be able to play my music and to listen alongside, I'm going to go to a library and people are going to love hearing that. Again, the location can point us to our purpose for being there. But our location, especially when it comes to the church, is not the original foundation of the church. So we have memories growing up of going to church and meeting God through a sermon, meeting God through a worship song, going to VBS or going to kids' ministry events and remembering our teachers who taught us so much. We remember friendships that have been forged within church buildings. We remember potlucks and meals that have been shared. We remember beautiful things. And I am by no means saying those are bad. They're just not the be-all, end-all of what Jesus has called us to. 
And in a year where church has looked so differently than it had for generations upon generations, the orthodoxy of the right belief that as a church we are called to be called out ones, to be an assembly, an intentional, purposeful gathering, it means that we can have an assembly, we can have an ecclesia, whether you're here meeting outdoors with us. We have the ecclesia, an intentional, purposeful gathering for all of you who are joining online. That we can have an intentional gathering wherever we are in which we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and prayer. Jesus called us not to a monument, but to a movement. He called us not to a place, but to the purpose of sharing his gospel wherever we go. And so, as we, as we end here, we talked a lot about this, but there's one question that Jesus asked in verse 15 that we all need to answer at one point in our lives. And that's the question, who do you say that I am? Because the world can have varying opinions. People we know and love will have multiple different ideas of who Jesus is. But in the end, you are the one who is going to face Jesus. He'll be on the white throne and, and, and we'll be there and there'll be judgment. And he's going he's gonna to say, you know, who, who do you say that I am? And here on earth, when we say, Jesus, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Saying those words, believing in our heart and confessing it with our lips, with our mouths, welcomes us into the assembly, the ecclesia of God, of Jesus Christ. Because the foundation is him, Jesus alone, and the proclamation of who he is. And so as we close this sermon, but start this year, there may be some people who are here with us in person or some of you who are watching online that you've never answered that question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a good man? Is he just a moral teacher? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he a prophet? Or is he Lord? Because there's no better way to start this year, there's no better way to, to, to have our lives be than in this moment to say and to surrender that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He's the Christ, and I confess him as Lord and Savior. Because when you do, you're not invited into a place where there's do's and don'ts. You're invited, not invited to a place where there's checkboxes and checklists of how to follow Jesus. You're not invited into a strict, organized, things have to be exactly one way. You're invited into the people of God into the assembly, the called out ones, that when you hear his call, we respond and we drop everything. That you are called to that. And if you're hearing my voice, it's because God created you and he loves you and he formed you in your mother's womb. Jesus died for you. He lived a perfect life and he died a horrible death, but was raised to new life so that you may have eternal life, so that we may have eternal life. And the Holy Spirit might be knocking on the door of your heart and will we allow him in and will we run to him? Or will we shut that door and put off answering that question who we say he is? Because if we all understood who Jesus is and what we're called to as a church, we won't go to church. We'll be the church. And as it says in our final notes, according to Jesus, the foundation of the church 
has always been a matter, as it was never a matter of where, but a matter of who. Who do you say I am? And who has answered that he is Lord? Because that's how we draw close to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you are here in this place, wherever this place is. Lord, thank you that we could be an assembly, a congregation who congregates, a people who are assembled in order to be part of the movement of your kingdom through the church. God, we thank you for this building that we have. We thank you for uh, this location. And we thank you, Lord, that this location may be where we get refreshed, but is not where we stay. That we are able to be refreshed, renewed, connect with you. And then we go out and we live differently Monday through Saturday because of who you are and what you revealed to us on Sunday. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not just go to church, but to be the church. And as we spend the next Uh, several weeks, unpacking what that means. God, stir within us the desire to be your church and stir within us the reminder to proclaim that you alone are Lord and the Son of the living God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.